Welcome to Mercer's podcast series on the new shape of work. I'm Kate Bravery, Mercer's advisory and insight leader. And today I'm joined by Wolfgang Siegel, leader of workplace health consulting in the UK and Europe for Mercer Marsh Benefits. Welcome, Wolfgang. Great to have you on the call. I think I was just sharing with you before we got on the line today that your prior podcast on mental health which aired during the pandemic, I think was our most listened recording. So, so no pressure today, but I do have high hopes and, and welcome back. Hi, thank you so much, Kate, for having me. And it's wonderful to have a conversation with you again on this podcast series. And yes, you set the bar very high by mentioning that uh, data point just now. So let's just jump into it. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. But isn't it just wonderful that conversations on mental health are happening um, at the fever pace that we are seeing? Um, and I think that's a really good outcome of this pandemic period. And I'm particularly in, interested today to hear how the landscape of employee mental health and well-being has changed since we last spoke, and maybe a little bit more on some of the trending best practices. I think we all appreciated that COVID-19 exacerbated the burden of mental health for workers and their families. But it's interesting because despite the debilitating impacts of outbreaks, really beginning to diminish and lockdowns and social restrictions are receding. I, I hope they're now a thing of the past. We still appear to be experiencing significant stress, anxiety and depression worldwide. So maybe we can start there today because I'd like to understand what is the impact of that stress. Certainly when I think about next year, there's no doubt we're going to be adding further economic uncertainty, environmental challenges, potential military conflicts, grappling with talent shortages. I mean, there's no shortage of stressors. How do these stressors affect employees and particularly employees in the workplace? Yes, it looks like there's no end inside this, uh, Kate. And all of us uh, respond to severe and prolonged periods of stress. And that's a normal response to an abnormal event. So we shouldn't get too worked up about the fact that we are getting stressed. But that's, of course, different from those day-to-day -day pressures that are often labeled as stress as well. And some pressure is actually necessary to help us grow and achieve new heights. There's even biological evidence that short spurts of stress boost our immune system. You may call it the corporate athlete in a professional context. Uh, it describes what a sprinter does when focusing all the energy on just 10 seconds. And I used to compete in sprinting and so can relate to that very well. But prolonged periods of stress without relaxation are unhealthy and lead to the depletion of our immune system's reserves. So cumulative stress is real. Uh, we see people feeling a form of despair, anxiety, and lost sense of belonging. Let me use a simple example. If you are used to finishing work at 6 uh, p.m., let's say, and then you get an unexpected urgent task, you stay till 7 or 8, which over time may become your new normal. Now, any extra task or pressure really challenges your equilibrium and you add another hour to the so-called new normal. You may enter uh, something I call a system of decline, much longer hours, much pressure, carrying over the stress from one domain, which is work, to another domain, which is your home life. And things don't go well at home because you're exhausted and so on. You, you get the picture. Work and home life start negatively affecting each other. And the system of decline becomes the, if you like, prominent paradigm. So we also need to appreciate that everyone is different and stress is uh, personal. So everyone responds differently. 
And that's perfectly normal, as we just said. At one extreme, some people feel fine or are even flourishing. At the other end of the spectrum, some people may experience depression if they have a higher predisposition to mental ill health due to, say, life history or circumstances. And then there is this big group in the middle or the neglected middle child, as Adam Grant calls it. That group is languishing, uh, experiencing brain fog and doesn't feel comfortable anymore in the world we live in as it gets increasingly uncertain and unsafe, as we just said, and we probably were both alluding to cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine, the pandemic, and the emotional loss of uh, what we used to think of being normal. And we are not even yet talking about post-traumatic stress disorder that the papers are starting talking about a lot. That's a diagnosis which should be reserved for people experiencing extreme events like natural disasters, fires, accidents, war, rape, domestic violence, etc. And you will notice when I list those that the incidence of some of these has actually increased during the pandemic, like unfortunately domestic violence during lockdown or people spending prolonged periods of time in intensive care units, which can increase the likelihood of a diagnosis of PTSD. And some psychologists have even argued that we are now all suffering from collective PTSD, which I don't agree with, since it would deprive people who suffered those extreme experiences of trauma that I just described of an appropriate diagnosis and hence treatment. So it's not all the same. You know, it's when the stress concept uh, reached the tabloids, suddenly it became scientifically meaningless. And I don't want that to happen to PTSD either. So organizations that you and I look after or, or talk to will probably have three types of bruised employees in this current world of multiple crises. Those on the front line of extreme life events, such as war, those related to them or close to them, and the vast majority of people who have increased anxiety because of the state of the world. And those different groups need different types of support. Really interesting. And thank you for sort of teasing out those differences between prolonged stress and systems of decline. I think it's really interesting to think how our normal has shifted and, and to be really cognizant on that. And I love the term there, bruised employees. I think that's a very, very appropriate way to describe what we've all been through. I think all of us appreciate the linkage between people being able to bring their best self to work and be productive with being well, you know, having a good sense of well-being. But even though we've had a lot more awareness of mental health and a lot more discussion around stress and stressors, we also see in our research some concerns that maybe the tools and resources and time for employees to really make progress on some of this isn't there. And if it was there during the pandemic is beginning to diminish. You work very closely with companies who are wanting to support their employees. Where are you seeing those best practice examples and what can employees be doing just to make sure that people can be resilient during these tough times? Yeah, let's uh, quickly move to the positive stuff, right? But first get some uh, uh, gloomy stats out of the way. In our people risk report, uh, we found that uh, just two in five businesses believe that they have effective systems, environments and communications in place to support a culture of well-being. So the first step is to reinforce what is 
already available to employees simply through EAPs, the employee assistance programs, the insured benefits and the uninsured benefits that are out there. And we have um, seen an uptake for employee assistance programs during the pandemic after years of very limited use. But that has put pressure on the system and EAPs may not be able to meet the increased demand. It is important to ensure that uh, EAPs make employees aware of other resources if they cannot meet the demand immediately. That's what they were designed for, to be available 24-7. We at uh, Mercer, we also review many EAPs for our clients and we know how to evaluate their capability, but also their capacity. And generally speaking, the business model of EAPs is very flexible as they work from hubs usually and linking hundreds or thousands of affiliate counselors. Hence, the model should be able to adapt to demand. Where that's not the case, clients are wise to run an RFP to get what they need. We also need to talk about the breadth of EAP services, particularly during the cost of living crisis. And not everyone knows about the financial well-being support that EAPs provide, uh, all the way to debt consolidation and insolvency support in some cases. Uh, I think another point that's probably positive is that we have made huge strides in destigmatizing mental health during the pandemic. And getting close to what we call parity of esteem between mental health and physical health in recent years. Uh, so in the UK, for instance, 51% of employees are now saying they are comfortable talking about mental health at work. Still not everyone, but that's a huge step up from where we were. But now we find that 36% say they are comfortable talking about financial worries. So there's still a gap, there's still a long way to go to learn from destigmatization programs in mental health to apply them to financial well-being as well. And so we recommend that organizations review their benefits offerings and also include virtual mental health offerings that can help employees uh, access treatment more quickly uh, than in person in some cases. So it makes it much more scalable. And in addition, ensuring that it is affordable so high earners and low earners alike can use those services. And those innovative digital mental health tools are key to that scalability I just mentioned, particularly in the prevention and early intervention phase. For instance, resiliency apps have become very popular. They also have a place in anxiety and depression treatment in form of online CBT, that's cognitive behavior therapy. But as always, we can't rely on tech solutions alone for human problems, and they need to be balanced with in-person interventions and empathy. That's key. And in our Global Talent Trend Survey, we have heard that 34% of organizations plan to add mental or emotional health benefits, if they call it that way, to address the needs of their employees. And I think from my experience, the good news is that well thought out uh, mental health benefits have a significant return on investment. For instance, we found with a global client that aligning their mental health benefits in the mental health pathway where all providers know about each other and have sound referral protocols in place, outcomes can be very significant, like 9% reduction in insurance claims for mental health, 16% reduction in average cost of claims 
41% reduction in absence rates, and most importantly, 60% improvement of therapy outcomes. And if I sort of contextualize it even wider, uh, the most respected authors in that space agree that as a rule of thumb, well-being programs tend to return four to five times the amount invested in them. Well, that's a fantastic stat to leave us with there and some really powerful statistics there. I think intuitively we all know this is a critical area to be focusing on, but uh, just to see some of those outcomes. And it is interesting to see how companies are shifting to look at what really drives those outcomes. I think with the data that we've all had available in the last couple of years, we've got a lot more precise in understanding what makes a difference. Um, you know, you mentioned there about apps. I've also been hearing some companies using wearables so that people get feedback on their stress. And linking to that, linking into kind of what caused that stress, I think there's a great study out just released with by Bupa saying, when you look at stress throughout the day, that stress is often related to things that happen outside work. But as you know, whether it's precipitated outside work or inside work, at the end of the day, it still impacts um, our day-to-day -day work. So I love your comments that you were just ending there with, it can't just be about tech, uh, it does need to be about other factors. So why don't we move there? Um, I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about the role that the culture plays. There's a lot in the media at the moment about toxic work cultures. Um, there's a lot around jobs not being designed for well-being in mind. I wonder if you could say something about how organisations can build a, a more holistic approach to encouraging people to have healthy habits. Yes, I make the same observations as you just mentioned as well. And it's interesting that relationship between an organization and their employees and what we used to call the psychological contract, if you like, and whether people feel at home there or don't feel at home there. And how is that linked to the great resignation and, and, and the silent withdrawal from work, if you like, the quiet quitting, as some people call it. And, and often the key point here is the need to support and train managers to recognize the signs that someone is struggling with mental health in the workplace and ensure um, they know what resources are available to share with employees. There's only those two things that managers need to learn, you know, have enough empathy to understand what's going on and be cognizant of what referral mechanisms are around. So um, while we know organizations must support mental health, managers and employees often are not equipped to notice or manage those specific mental health cases. And um, well-being programs get often introduced reactively rather than proactively as part of the culture, as you say. All employers must be more able to recognize and support mental health in the workplace, not just as a one-off uh, during World Mental Health Day, but all year round. And if that's done correctly, Training is actually the prerequisite for healthy usage also of digital health and well-being programs, because we didn't mention earlier that however wonderful and scalable they are, they are usually being used for a few weeks and then the, the usage falls off a cliff. So there needs to be something done around that as well. And Mercer's new mental health awareness training for all actually takes awareness to what I believe is a new level and opens the door to those other programs. And the guiding principle there is mental health awareness is for all and less is more. I, what I mean by that is that the training is short and snappy and it contains only four modules that are just about 10 minutes each. And there is no complicated psychological jargon, only uh, engaging dramatized learning content, as I call it, because we worked with actors 
so people can see their facial expressions, their body language, and so on. Sort of a universal language rather than the jargon-driven language that are being used elsewhere. And there are also celebrity interviews to normalize people's mental health experience. And expert comments from me only when absolutely necessary, you will be pleased to hear. So those four modules are resilience, empathy, self-care and engagement. And most of the modules recognize individuals are not always born with the skills needed to support both their own and their colleagues' mental well-being. For instance, we were just talking about empathy and many people say you can't learn empathy, but research shows the opposite. Namely, that those with high levels of empathy benefit less from training than those with low levels because they have more to catch up on. And the module on empathy, for instance, shows how to learn to take another person's perspective without trying to walk in their shoes, I emphasize, because that's never possible. And there are simple visual exercises to help people develop their empathy skills. And mental health awareness in the workplace will not work with a quick one-off training session for some employees. Instead, it should be all-inclusive as we have tried to be in those films and form part of the core of doing business. So mental health awareness has to permeate the whole culture of the organization. And more broadly, we can draw lessons from managing much more serious diagnoses that we started discussing at the beginning of our conversation, like post-traumatic stress disorder. And we can learn from those serious uh, conditions, also how to deal with less serious ones, because social connection seems to be the biggest preventative factor in diminishing or even avoiding some of the PTSD symptoms, and even more so for day-to-day -day worries, hence cultivating a sense of belonging in your organization and being purpose-driven is uh, a very important way in which companies can support employees today and the shining stars amongst them will be the companies that create a purpose uh, for everyone to get behind. And I'm really glad that we are having this discussion about purpose with our clients nowadays. But I would like to also sound the warning bells a little bit about purpose washing, as I keep seeing it sometimes these days, because aligning the purpose of individuals with the overarching purpose of the organization is a more complex and caring process, I would say, than just decreeing a simple purpose. It needs psychological safety, a culture in which people trust their voices being heard and where the team is open to interpersonal risk-taking and learning from mistakes rather than brushing them under the carpet. That kind of culture leads to significant productivity gains as well, actually, as the famous Google study has shown where we saw that teams with high uh, psychological safety by far outperformed their targets and teams with low psychological safety. Then there's a point perhaps uh, that sounds quite philosophical here. We could talk about altruism, which can take the form of donating funds or donating skills, which is another powerful tool actually for processing complex trauma. Uh, lessons about what worked from shocks like 9-11 and the pandemic will also work now. It also works in the prevention phase when we try to build resilience since human beings are measurably happier in terms of their biological parameters like um, the happy hormones in their body. They are happier when helping others than receiving a present. 
we need to bear that in mind that is linked to ESG agendas as well. It's it's quite easy to mobilize people with uh, altruistic uh, outcomes and goals for their health and well-being behavior change. And supporting the community where the organization is located or operates is one way to pull employees out of the state of languishing. So be creative, listen to employees and find out what entities exist around you and how the company can be useful in its community. And for me, again, from speaking from experience, the most exciting development in my work over the last couple of years in benefit strategy has been that organizations are starting to look at the bigger picture and are becoming more aware that the new EVP, the employee value proposition, has many interconnected elements such as ESG, health and well-being, diversity, equity and inclusion, financial and psychological safety, lifelong learning, skills development, career progression and purpose. And that's not a Mercer push, that's a client pull that they ask for that. And we have talked in the past solely about what's not working and human pathology. Uh, I think it's time to articulate and lift what makes people thrive and flourish. What is good work? and how work in general actually contributes so significantly to health and happiness and meaning in life. So now we need something that I call a cycle of renewal, which is a concept comprised of several pillars aimed at helping businesses support employees through difficult times. And it reinforces the idea that employee well-being can increase engagement, resilience and performance and make employees feel like they belong by focusing more deeply on what drives and supports them. So you can see I get carried away more with the positive <laughs> aspects than the analysis of what has gone wrong. I like it. I like it. And you know what? I think it's so easy to get caught up with talking about the negative side of the period that we've been through and the stress and the stresses outside and inside work that we're facing. And it is actually great to hear that. I love the concept of the cycle of renewal. I think it gives us that sense of looking forward. And I do, you know, we, we've definitely seen the value proposition for employees move from that loyalty contract to the engagement contract. And we're firmly in the Thrive con, uh, contract. And I think people are much more aware than they've ever been before about how do we help employees thrive? What does a thriving work culture look like? And I think that's incredibly exciting. You know, we've got a, a number of companies at the moment that are making well-being an outcome of their new work design and, and the new ways of working, which I think is phenomenally exciting. And I don't know about you, Wolfgang, it does feel to me that this is a long overdue adjustment. Uh, and I think it will, it's going to lead to good places. Um, I loved your comments also about sort of value-based benefits. I agree with you what employees believe good work is and those companies that are signing up to the World Economic Forum Good Work Framework, they're working very closely with their employees to link their personal values and what they care about to the initiatives in the organisation. And I, I loved your comments there. That's a much more powerful concept of purpose uh, than some of the um, marketing-led statements that we had maybe 10 years ago. So again, um, some really, really positive strides. Everything you've been telling me there, particularly around how do we make this as, as habits, make sure that leaders are aware where there might be system de decline in their workforces, how do we make it part of the culture? It, you know, it really does resonate with some of the data that we see in global talent trends. Uh, I don't know if you know, but we actually found that employees that feel they are thriving 
are seven times more likely to work for a company that they prioritize employee well-being. I've been doing this thriving cut in our global talent trends for seven years. That's the most powerful multiplier I've ever had. And I think that really just um, signify just how much more aware everyone has got about whether they're working in a healthy work environment or not, and whether they feel the company is invested in their well-being. Um, Wolfgang, as always, I could talk to you for much longer, um, but thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your insights today. Every time I hear from you, I learn something new. And listeners, thank you for kindly taking a bit of your time out of your day and tuning in. If you're interested in this topic or others associated with the new Shape of Work series, please do check out our interview series on Mercer.com. Thank you for joining. Wolfgang, as I said, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It has been a huge pleasure for me as always. And I could talk to you also forever, but I know how busy you are, but you always inspire me. Thank you. Oh, it's been wonderful. Uh, thanks, everybody. And I do hope everyone has a great rest of the day.